Well, here we are. We made it. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. Welcome to the final episode of this season of State Street. We had an idea of what this episode would sound like. We actually had written pretty much all of it out. Because it was pretty clear how the last day of the legislative session was shaping up. But in the final hours, the legislature took a surprise turn. They introduced what was essentially a brand new bill banning transgender girls from playing school sports. And it really changed the focus of the session on that final day. Before this, they passed a lot of measures to conserve water. They spent a billion dollars on infrastructure and decided not to pass a bunch of divisive bills, like a proposal to end the vote-by-mail system. Governor Spencer Cox said in his closing speech that he hoped the transgender bill wouldn't overshadow all of that. But that is the note that the session ended on. This episode, we're going to give you our top five takeaways about what lawmakers did and, most importantly, how it affects you. First off, we're starting with the surprise late-night move banning transgender girls from school sports. And we'll talk about other ways the legislature's actions impact your kids at school. So a few hours before the session ended, I saw that a new version of the transgender sports bill had been posted on the legislative website. So, you know, I opened it up and I saw that it was an all out ban on transgender girls playing school sports. And my jaw really just hit the floor. I was really shocked, too, Sonia, because they've been negotiating this issue for a year with LGBTQ advocates, with school sports administrators, with different conservative groups. Right. And a full-on ban bill was introduced last year that did not end up passing. So this year, they initially came back with a bill that creates a commission. That commission would have decided which athletes can play. And then at the 11th hour, they scrapped that idea and brought back the full-out ban. That passed just about an hour before the session ended. There is a provision in that bill that says if the ban is struck down or paused by a lawsuit, then that commission process goes into place. Now, this bill will very likely not go into effect. Governor Spencer Cox has promised to veto it, and the bill did not pass with enough support to overturn a veto. So there are two main points we need to look at here. The first gets to the core of this debate over trans girls competing in school sports. Trans girls are girls. And something that really struck me about the Senate debate was that a lot of Republicans kept referring to transgender girls as boys. And to me, that just further underscores the double standard that they're creating here. Right. They're concerned about transgender girls being bigger and stronger than cisgender girls. But they're not banning a six foot tall cisgender girl who weighs 200 pounds from playing. But if that girl happens to be transgender, these conservative lawmakers say that is an unfair competitive advantage. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has actually joined legal challenges against laws like this. So one example they mentioned throughout the session, Sonia, when they were debating this issue is a swimmer at Penn State. She is a really incredible athlete. She's been breaking all these records. But there aren't any examples like that here in Utah. I talked to Sue Robbins from Equality Utah about that. 
And when you hear language about people who saw one successful transgender athlete, so they feel like they have to do something, the message is very clear. As long as you're invisible, we can put up with you. But the minute you're not invisible, we need to make you go away. So this lengthy debate they had in the Senate was, frankly, transphobic Mm -hmm. on the part of lawmakers who supported the ban. They referred to trans girls as boys. They framed transgender girls as a threat to other students. And they didn't fully acknowledge the impact this ban could have on trans kids. But some legislators recognized this could be harmful. Yeah. At one point, Senator Daniel Thatcher, who is a Republican, spoke directly to trans kids who may have been listening. And he actually mentioned the state's mental health crisis app. And I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in the message we're going to send to these kids tonight. These kids who just want to be normal, who just want to be loved, who just want to be seen, who just want to live I want them to know that I'm sorry that I couldn't do more. I want them to know that we're changing and we are learning and we are growing. Five years ago, I would not have given this speech. I would have voted for the bill. But as I've gotten to know you, I have loved you. And I will love you. And I'm sorry that tonight's going to be really hard for you. And if you are struggling, and if you need someone to talk to, I want you to download the SafeUT app. Use it right now if you have to, and reach out and tell someone that you need to talk. Because we need you, and it will get better. And I'm sorry that today is going to be hard for you. And I'm sorry for what's about to happen. So that brings us to our second point about this bill. The process. Yeah, like we mentioned, this bill was unveiled just hours before the session ended. The Senate started debating it three and a half hours before they adjourned. And then the House spent just 15 minutes debating this bill that had just come out and passed it at 10.58 p.m., an hour before the end of the session. Both Democrats and Republicans criticized this process, not only because it came at the last minute, but also, like we said before, they had been negotiating this for a year. Just to throw all that out the window in the final hours of the session. Representative Kara Berkland, the bill's sponsor, said basically this policy just needed to get done. She couldn't get everyone to agree on the compromise policy, that commission. And so that's why she says it had to happen this way. But something really unusual that happened as well was that Senate Democrats asked for a 15-minute break during floor time in order to discuss the bill because they hadn't had time to read it yet. And they were not allowed to do that. So they didn't have time to discuss it. And neither did the public because this came literally right at the end. There were no public committee hearings on it. Sue Robbins from Equality Utah, who we heard from earlier, she said her group was cut out of negotiations a little over a week before the final bill was unveiled on the last night without any notice. 
Sonia, this reminds me a lot of what environmental activist Dita Seed described in our episode about the so-called Utah way. Right. This idea that politics in Utah is nice and collaborative. Exactly. And Dita said that doesn't really exist. And you only get to be at the table with people in power if having you there is useful to them. And, you know, one of the other people that we talked to for that episode was Troy Williams, who's the executive director of Equality Utah. He was involved in these negotiations about transgender athletes as well. And during that episode, we heard him say that he's been a part of the Utah way before and successfully created a compromise. But on the last night of the session, he very clearly said this process was not the Utah way. And again, this policy will likely not go into place. Governor Cox says he will veto it, and it did not pass with a veto-proof majority. So this bill is an example of culture wars being fought in schools across the country. Right. We also saw this pop up early in the session when there was a lot of talk about what kids learn at school. And that really stemmed from local and national debates about critical race theory or CRT. And pretty much all of those bills that dealt with curriculum transparency and limits on what can be taught in classrooms failed. The one that did pass bans books with pornographic material from schools. A few lawmakers worried that some books addressing important issues like sexual assault could get swept up in this. The example that was given on the House floor was The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Representative Carol Spackman Moss, who is a former teacher, she said, and let me read this to you, The purpose of literature is to illuminate our lives and the human condition. And part of that is showing us the darker side. So we started with what happened on the very last night of the session, but let's now take it back to the beginning, when the legislature acted very quickly on another contentious issue. When we originally wrote this script, we asked KUER Golden Voice Bob Nelson to guide us through this episode, so he'll be helping us out the rest of the way. Number two. Your local leaders have less control over how they respond to covid One of the first things on lawmakers' to-do list was undoing Salt Lake and Summit County's mask mandates. And that was something those county councils decided they wanted because of the Omicron surge. This was an interesting move because last year, the legislature gave county councils the ability to either approve or remove a mask mandate. But I think they were surprised that the Republican supermajority, Salt Lake County Council, actually upheld the mask mandate. Here's Councilmember Lori Stringham at the county council meeting where they voted to uphold it. And she was visibly upset, in part because the legislature didn't give them many tools to address this problem. Do I think a mandate's the best way to do this? Hell no. And that, that, the quorum, let me speak, please. I'm asking. So I have been very frustrated because the only thing that this council gets the right to do is either uphold a mandate or overturn it. That is, the, that is the formula we've been given, and that was given to us by the state legislature. So the legislature came in and undid this. Basically, they gave the county councils this power, and when they didn't like what the counties did with it, they stepped in and said, no, we're going to make the final decision. This wasn't the only example of the legislature taking control when it comes to responding to the pandemic. 
They also passed a bill that lets employees get out of a vaccine mandate if they prove they previously had COVID. However, employers could require a vaccine if they can prove the worker needs one to do their job. You know, Emily, this reminds me a lot of what I talked to Salt Lake Tribune columnist Robert Gerke about in our last episode. He makes the case that the legislature has given itself more and more power by taking away power from the governor and from local governments. And from regular people. Sonia, remember those ballot initiatives from 2018 that Utah voters approved and then the legislature changed them and we are still talking about it to this day? I sure do. You can't get away from the 2018 ballot initiatives. You can't, that's for sure. And it's another really good example of the legislature kind of deciding what's best for the people, even if the people want to make that decision for themselves. Republicans really surprised me with how they justified taking away that local control this session. Yeah, they actually said it would lead to more local control. Right. This was a take on the concept that I had never heard before. Lawmakers said that removing the mask mandate returned the control over mask wearing to individuals and to families. And that, you know, these conversations that you have around the dinner table as a family, deciding if you're going to wear masks or not, represents the most local control over the issue. So critics said local governments should make these decisions because they're closest to the people they serve. But state lawmakers pushed back against that and said they were actually closer to the people because their districts have fewer people in them than the Salt Lake County Council's districts. But on the other hand, less than half of the legislature represents Salt Lake County and 100 percent of the Salt Lake County Council represents Salt Lake County. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get into three other ways the legislature impacted your life this session, starting with voting. You're listening to State Street. Support for State Street comes from the Hinckley Report podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about the biggest political headlines in the Beehive State. Find new episodes of PBS Utah's The Hinckley Report every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm David Fox from Sentaway, a new investigative podcast that shines a light on Utah's youth treatment industry. KUER, The Salt Lake Tribune, and APM Reports uncover how the state failed to keep kids safe told through the stories of the teens who lived it. Sent Away is coming March 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. As we saw earlier with those culture war issues in schools, state politics is becoming increasingly driven by national issues. And that brings us to our next big takeaway that has to do with a few election bills this session. Number three. You can still vote by mail. And that is despite some lawmakers' efforts. The legislature did make some changes to the way we vote, the way our ballots are collected, and how our votes are counted. So nationally, you've got Republicans challenging the results of the 2020 presidential election, even though they're not able to provide any proof of widespread fraud. 
In Utah, some said there could have been fraud, and others said there wasn't fraud, but we should still put more security measures in place. Emily, let's start with a bill from Representative Phil Lyman that did not pass, but really sums up the national GOP conversation about election security. Lyman said that vote by mail is not secure, and his legislation would have eliminated it. You could still have voted by mail with an absentee ballot if you were out of state or disabled. It also would have banned turning in other people's voter registration forms for them, which is something that voter registration drives do sometimes. And it would have required the state to hire an outside firm to conduct audits of each election. But Sonia, most Republican officials agree Utah does elections really well. The state has had vote by mail for years, and Utah's elections director says the first vote by mail system was in 2014 in Davis County, and it's just expanded since then. The lieutenant governor's office oversees elections, and she is a Republican. Yeah, but we heard a ton of misinformation at the hearing for this bill before it died. I have to give credit to the members of the committee who did a great job of fact-checking what members of the public and the bill sponsor said at the beginning by comparing it to what the elections director has said. So you had to stick around until the end to get that fact-checking. Exactly. All right. So that didn't pass. Vote by mail lives to see another day. So let's look at what changes lawmakers did approve. So the biggest one was this really lengthy bill by Representative John Hawkins that he worked on with the lieutenant governor and the county clerks. Here's what it does. Anyone who does not provide valid voter ID when they register has to send a photocopy in the mail with their ballot. It also requires 24-hour video surveillance of unattended ballot drop boxes. On top of that, it creates a bunch of new requirements for elections officials, like developing security measures related to the way ballots are handled. It also requires the lieutenant governor's office to audit voter registration records at least once a year. And it prohibits vote counting machines from being connected to the Internet, which election officials say is already a standard practice. Many of the new security measures in Hawkins' bill were actually suggestions from the office of Republican Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson. And at the same time, Henderson has continually spoken out against claims that our elections aren't secure and against proposals like Lyman's vote-by-mail bill. To uh, have public officials kind of playing into this hysteria and playing into this narrative, this false narrative that there's somehow a problem a narrative that is driven by, you know, other states, people in other states and, and, and national interests that have no idea how we actually do things in the state of Utah is really problematic. And I think sometimes the public officials who are doing this are the most uninformed about our processes. Wow, those are some pretty strong words, Sonia. They really are. Yeah, she's really been trying to walk a fine line here with this issue. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, she's saying that her office and local election officials do regular audits and have not found any evidence of widespread fraud. And no outside person has shown her that evidence either. But on the other hand, she says there are things that we could do to make our elections even more secure than they already are. Not everyone buys into that, though. The sponsor of the vote-by-mail repeal bill, Representative Phil Lyman, says if things are so secure, 
why do you need to upgrade the system? And there's very clearly some tension between the two of them. But let's be clear, Sonia. There is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Utah or anywhere. Mm -hmm. And Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson says entertaining bills like Lyman's undermines elections because it makes people think they're not secure. And that is bad for democracy. The U.S. was actually listed as a backsliding democracy for the first time in 2021. And that's from a report by the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. That organization is a group of 35 countries that work to support democracy. I will note the U.S. is not a part of that group. The number one reason they listed for that rating of a backsliding democracy was people contesting elections with no evidence. Number four. Lawmakers are trying to conserve your water. Lawmakers are hoping with some of the bills they passed, you'll have cleaner air to breathe and more water for your kids and grandkids. Emily, this was really the talk of the town this session. Oh, yeah. And the main attraction was the Great Salt Lake. It was. And it even captured the attention of the House Speaker. You are right, Sonia. Right before the session started, House Speaker Brad Wilson hosted a summit on the Great Salt Lake. And there was this sense of urgency there. The point was to talk about the problems facing the lake, which reached an all-time low last summer. And a drying lake has big implications for air quality and for the ecosystem and for the state's economy. Here's Wilson at that conference. The lake isn't dead. It isn't even dying in the normal sense of the word. But it does face serious threats moving forward, threats that, if we can't find meaningful ways to address them now, will become a serious crisis over time one that threatens the health, economic prosperity, and quality of life of every Utah. So it's a big deal, and it's really important to save the Great Salt Lake. Oh, yeah. And everyone at the legislature basically agrees on that. Mm -hmm. There were three big bills this session about the lake, and they all work together. The state has $40 million to put toward paying water rights holders to keep more water flowing into the Great Salt Lake. And some of that money will also go toward restoring the lake's wetlands. And like we talked about in our Great Salt Lake episode this season, this is a big step for the state. And it'll probably have a big impact. But advocates say the lake needs so much more if it's going to survive. Yeah, this is a big shift for the legislature, like you said. You know, for decades, it has resisted all kinds of water conservation efforts. But last summer, the lake reached record low levels. And that kind of underscored just how serious this problem is. And I think lawmakers realized their previous strategy wasn't working and they needed to make some big changes. Again, this is a big step. But we've still got projects like the Bear River Diversion that will take water away from the Great Salt Lake. So, Sonia, state leaders are going to have to make some tough decisions about how to balance all that. They didn't appropriate money specifically for that project, but Senate leadership said the money they are putting toward water in general could potentially be used for it. And, Emily, I don't think this issue is going away anytime soon or maybe ever, I would not be surprised if next year the legislature considers spending even more money on the lake. Number five. Your rent is probably still too damn high. 
As we said a few episodes back, it is brutal out here in Utah's housing market. Far worse even than when I was last looking for a place to live about a year ago. So in that episode, we talked to Senator Jake Anderegg, who was really plugged into the funding that was available for affordable and deeply affordable housing. And he said he expected $228 million in one-time funding to go toward building more units. It's It's been heightened because people are talking about it. People recognize the issue. People have kids and grandkids that are moving from the state at record numbers. So on top of all of that is just where the economy here is going. Uh, It's kind of the perfect storm. And I think with this big chunk of money sitting there, people are saying we really got to throw a serious amount of money at this to, to, to really attack this. But in the end, that didn't happen. Let me take you back to me sitting in my living room at 6 p.m. on a Friday night, drinking a Diet Coke and sitting on my couch because that is when the budget dropped a week before the session ended. Oh, man, Sonia, two Friday nights in a row where you could have been watching Love Island instead. If only. I have been glued to my computer every day for like the last two weeks. Sad. (laughs) Anyway, I was scrolling through this long, long document with all the funding items in it, and they tint the paper lilac to try to make it more exciting, I think. Lilac, is it scratch and sniff too? Well, the digital version sadly was not. I don't know about the print version, but we'll leave that up to the imagination. (laughs) So there it was, and I was looking for those funding items that Andereg was pretty confident about, and they weren't there. Listen, you were not the only one surprised, Sonia. I actually texted Senator Andereg about this, and I asked him for a comment, and all he said was, ugh, (laughs) with four U's, by the way. So it's like, thank you for clarifying. (laughs) And he said I could quote him on that. Amazing. Well, they didn't totally skip over those funding requests, though. Instead of $228 million, there was $55 million for deeply affordable housing, which includes housing with services to help people stay out of homelessness. Again, this is one-time funding. But that $55 million is a lot more than they typically do. Andereg told us in our housing episode the most he's ever been able to get is $10 million. They also put $15 million, that's $1.5 million, in one-time funding toward preserving existing affordable housing. But Andereg and community advocates were really hoping for more money to put a dent in the state's critical need for more affordable housing stock. Which is only going to get worse as the state grows and prices continue to go up. Mm-hmm. Honestly, Sonia, it's kind of confusing. Because on the one hand, state leaders have been very clear that they believe the solution to our affordable housing crisis is building more units. But then Senate President Stuart Adams told reporters they don't just want to throw money at a problem if they don't know it'll work. Now, the other side of housing affordability is wages. We did not see any bills this session raising the minimum wage. There was one that would have required businesses to give minimum wage to people who also get tips, like servers at restaurants. But 
That was dead on arrival, as is usually the case with minimum wage bills. Top lawmakers have said many times they do not want to raise the minimum wage. And I think this year that was just a battle Democrats weren't prepared to fight. All right. Well, that rounds out our top five. But there's always a but. (laughs) Lawmakers had plenty of other impactful and controversial bills to discuss. Here's what else happened this session. The death penalty is here to stay. For the third time in recent years, lawmakers voted against repealing it for future cases. Supporters of the death penalty, which included some families of victims, said they considered it justice for horrific crimes. But people who favored the repeal argued that the death penalty was expensive and there was potential for executing innocent people. In the end, though, the bill met tough opposition, including from the House's top Republicans. After this session, you're going to pay less in taxes. At least a little bit less in taxes. The tax cut bill pencils out to about $100 less per year in income taxes for an average family of four. Lawmakers also cut the corporate income tax. There are also some measures to help low-income Utahns and older adults. Altogether, the tax cut bill is costing the state almost $200 million. There will soon be free period products in public schools across Utah. The legislature unanimously passed a bill requiring districts to make them available in elementary, middle, and high schools by July. They're giving school districts about $4 million over the next two years. And then after that, school districts are expected to spend about $1.7 million of their own money on supplying period products. Lawmakers passed a whole lot more bills than we had time to talk about. So if you want to learn more about what happened this session or maybe follow up on a bill that you were interested in, we've got a full recap up on KUER.org. And that story is also linked in the episode notes. That does it for this episode and season of State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. Can we start with another shout out to Bob Nelson? We absolutely can. And to the State Street team, Caroline Ballard, Elaine Clark, Brenton Weiniger, Renee Bright, Ivana Martinez, and Jim Hill. Our theme music was written by Roddy Nickpour. State Street is a production of KUER. If you liked what you heard, spread the love and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for joining us on this wild ride. We know the legislative session can be a lot, so we appreciate you tagging along. It's been real. I'm going to go take a nap now. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, Sonia. But don't worry, we'll pop up in your podcast feed for a bonus episode before you know it. Appreciate ya. <laughs> Let's gavel out. <laughs> Where do you buy gavels? Is there a gavel store? There's got to be some like <laughs> organization. Uh, no, no, like a company, like state legislature. Uh... State legislatures are us. <laughs> <laughs> From KUER.